This is the Blunt Doctor Show. On a Friday, well, dripping into Saturday now at this point as I record. Christmas has ended, but the holiday season is still all around us. You know how it goes. In a lot of cases, we might see one family member on one day, go see another family member on another day. Maybe you own thing with your close family and celebrate with your mom and brothers and sisters another day. We all mix it up. It's the holiday season. New Year's right around the corner. And we can finally escape 2020, which is something that we've all been desperately trying to do. How much better is 2021 going to be? Who knows? But at the very least, it won't be 2020. And I think that basically everybody in the world is excited for that. There was, obviously, a lot of basketball today. And amongst the various viewings of movies and bowl game and football game, I mean, I tried to watch as much basketball as I could, but when you're with family, you can only control the television so much. You know how it goes. And I got a good uh, amount of viewing in. Some of it was on my phone. Some of it was on the 85-inch TV my brother-in-law has. Some of it was relegated to checking score updates for a few moments here and there. You know how it goes. Before we get into all the NBA, two things on the football front. Number one, Alvin Kamara, six touchdowns. Damn. Saints are looking pretty good. Saints are looking pretty good. But you do wonder... You know, don't save all your best games or don't use all your best games in the regular season. You know, I mean, I again, I would hope that they do, but there is a little bit of sometimes we see these teams that have explosive offenses, and we just, you know, we've seen this so often from the Saints where it just kind of falls apart in the playoffs. We'll see, we'll see with the Saints. Like, Alvin Kamara is incredible. I don't know as much about Sean Payton and Drew Brees at this point. Michael Thomas is incredible. You know, they're skill position players. I mean, Drew Brees is... You know, he's having his moments. But today, Alvin Kamara was the engine of everything. Tomorrow, three games on the schedule. I'm just going to take Tampa Bay minus 10 against the, the Lions. I know it's kind of a large spread, but... I mean, I'm not betting on the Lions. <laughs> you know, obviously. So we'll just take Tampa Bay minus 10. Cardinals minus 5 versus 49ers. And Dolphins minus 3 versus Raiders. Essentially, I'm taking the three teams that have playoff positioning at stake. I'm taking them to cover the spread. And I know that Chalk doesn't always cover and this, that, and the other. But that's just what I think. Those are the three bets that I really liked. Looking at tomorrow, I think Tampa Bay is going to mix it up and try to blow out the Dolphins. Give themselves a big confidence boost. I think the Cardinals are really coming around on offense. I think Cliff Kingsbury, I don't know if he's turned a corner yet, but I still think he's an improving coach. And I think given that this is his second year and he's still doing this well in a crazy season, you know, I think that's something to, um, you know, to tip your cap to, if you will. And then the Dolphins, again, you know, they're in, you know, a playoff battle. So, 
You know, I just think, you know, and especially given the Raiders sort of just falling apart. So weird. You know, I mentioned this before, but you know, just a few years ago, the Raiders, I was like, oh man, they're going to be a threat for years. Things change quickly in the NFL. You know, in the NBA, things really, you know, there are a lot of dynasties. And it's weird to say a lot of dynasties because something, you know, by by its nature, something being dynastic means it's, you know, sort of rare and special. Um, I guess not necessarily rare, but, you know, it's hard to come by a dynasty, you know, that it is just a good team. And in the NFL, you know, there are so few. Really, the Patriots, you know, dynasty. The Cowboys dynasty, the 49ers dynasty, the Steelers dynasty. Um, you know, they're not a lot, but they do exist. But in the NBA, you have, you know, multiple dynastic Lakers teams and multiple dynastic Celtics teams. And so when you look at the NFL, things change so quickly. So when you have your chance, you got to roll with it. You got to you gotta burn it down. You got to go for it. In the NBA, things are long-term. And I've been thinking about a lot of things related to Miami. And there's one really weird question. It's going to sound insane. And I think that people... I'm going to get... if Whoever listens to this might trash me for this one. Anyway, just watch the Miami game. Obviously... In the first half, we all saw Duncan Robinson burn it up. Avery Bradley played well. He's going to fit in nicely there. You know, he brings perimeter de- perimeter defense and perimeter shooting. Two things that Jay Crowder bring, brought. I've had some today, folks. Brought to the table. I've had a few. Let's just go with that. But in any case, Bradley brings some of that to the table. Now, he brings it more from a guard position than a wing position. Um... But that doesn't change the fact that he's going to be an effective wing defender for Miami and an effective shooter. And, you know, he's more of a ball handler than Jay Crowder. And there could be scenarios where that's, you know, advantageous for them. But back to Duncan Robinson and just looking at his situation with him becoming, you know, eventually a restricted free agent. And I'm just starting to wonder, like... I know this sounds nuts, but especially in a market like next summer where there's so much money, is there a scenario where someone is going to give Duncan Robinson the max? Now, obviously, the max for a restricted free agent coming off of his rookie contract with, uh, you know, no like all NBA or all star type appearances, you know. It's a smaller max than many other guys can get. So it's not as much money. But the thing is, I know it sounds ludicrous on its face. But this man is basically the best shooter in the NBA not named Steph Curry. And in some ways, I mean, he can be viewed as better. Not a better player than Steph Curry, but just a better shooter because he literally doesn't even need the ball. To be successful. Now, we all know what Steph can do off-ball, too. It's it's ludicrous to suggest that Duncan Robinson is a better shooter than Steph Curry, given the history of Steph Curry. But over the next five years, Steph Curry is 33 years old. So is Steph Curry going to be better 
from age 33 to 38 than Duncan Robin is from Duncan Robinson is from age like 27 to 32. That's an open question. Seriously. As well as Steph Curry's skills will age. And as much as we want to put him up in the pantheon of, you know, ageless wonder stars. And I might, I was someone who wanted to put him there. It's reasonable to believe that Duncan Robinson is actually going to be more valuable as a shooter, as a shooter, not as a player, these are different things, but simply as a shooter, over the next five, six years. And he is the best shooter in the NBA. So, when the best shooter in the NBA gets to restricted free agency, like, how does that go? And in what world does that not result in that guy ending up with a max contract? He's the best shooter in the NBA. And you're a team that's got a bunch of money. Like, let's say, I'm just going to just throw some stuff out there. Like, okay, let's say Charlotte wants to put shooting around LaMelo Ball and Gordon Hayward. You know, and their whole, those two like to pass a lot. Let's say they just want to put a dude who can shoot right there. New York has money. I don't know that what Charlotte's cap situation is next summer. The point is, things are possible. A team like New York, up and coming, no real megastar. New York has wasted money before. Chicago needs shooting. It's just, I can see scenarios. And I'm not saying these things are going to happen. But if he gets to restricted free agency... Meaning, getting all the way through, you know, because it's one thing to not reach a negotiation by the preseason deadline, but then there's the deadline after the season heading into um, the restricted free agency where you can talk to your team before you're actually able to talk to other teams. So there's, if he actually gets all the way through everything and reaches restricted free agency, and there's money available. And multiple teams are bidding. How is someone not going to overpay? Because someone's just going to be like, oh, you know what? He's the best shooter in the NBA. Just pay whatever and we'll figure everything else out. Like someone's going to do that. Because if you think that this guy can realistically hit like seven to eight of 23s on a regular basis, that sort of efficiency is, it's ridiculous and, you know, I know that the numbers sound insane, but this is what we're trending towards in the NBA. And until the three ball suddenly stops being valuable, it's going to keep going that way. And maybe he won't get quite that much, but like, okay, let me ask you this question. Everyone hated the Gordon Hayward contract. The four years, $130 million. So let's say that you're the GM of your favorite team, and let's say that you have money. Would you prefer to give Duncan Robinson four years and $120 million, $30 million a year, or would you prefer to give that money to Gordon Hayward? In a vacuum, you'd probably prefer to give that money to Gordon Hayward just because he has a history of being an all-star player, pass, shoot, you know, rebound, play defense, he can do it all. But he's constantly injured. Right? That's always been a problem. So if you just think about that for a moment, if Charlotte, had, if say Duncan Robinson had been restricted free agent this year and Charlotte hit him with that offer sheet, would you have been 
more mad at that. And I know, again, we have to look at it's only, it hasn't been this long, all these things, but when shooting is this valuable in the NBA and the best shooter hits the market and he's a volume shooter. Like, let's remember, it's not like this dude is taking three or four threes a game and he's shooting the best percentage and it's like, well, he's a role player. I mean, this guy is shooting all the time. And I just think it really takes one. Like, you know if the Wizards had money, which they won't, but you know if they did that they would totally be all over that. But you just look at some teams and shooting is such a premium and he may not quite get it, but I think it's going to be way closer than anyone thinks. And I'm very interested to see how that goes. Now, it may end up being a thing where he really wants to stay in Miami and, you know, believe that's important for him. You know, who knows? But that's something I'm going to watch because... I really think, like, if you're his agent, it's like almost dereliction of duty to not get that dude to free agency. Is he a max player? No. But, like, Otto Porter got a max in free agency as a restricted free agent. Like, Otto Porter. And I'm not trying to diss Otto Porter, but I'm just saying, like, Trying to tell me that Duncan Robinson doesn't provide more or hasn't provided more than Otto Porter? I mean, (laughs) you know, I'm, it's, I just think it's more realistic. And maybe I'm missing the obvious that everyone else agrees. I haven't heard, I don't know. I just, I think that that's an interesting thing. I don't think anyone agrees with me. I think I'm going to get shelled, but. We'll see. Precious Ochua looks like a really nice draft pick as well, by the way. Just yet another one. We know how it goes. They draft them, they develop them in stars. Even the role players that Miami has developed. Like, they develop, like, elite role players. And I know that it's, like, a weird... But if, like, you understand your role and you're not trying to execute outside your role and you're not trying to go outside yourself and you're just trying to do what you do, like, there is something to be said for, like, being an elite role player. Like, Jay Crowder. Jay Crowder is here to shoot threes and play defense. He's not ever going to try to take over everything and make all the shots. You know, he's never going to do that. He's going to get to his spots, shoot triples when he's open. That's his job. And, you know, I think he's an elite role player. And I think there's really something to be said for guys who are elite at what they do. Even if they are not necessarily necessarily elite in terms of, you know, overall NBA rankings. In terms of the Pelicans from the Heat-Pelicans game, Steven Adams had a really nice first quarter. Hit a few interesting inside buckets. I You know, I think a lot of people are worried about the, the Pelicans spacing. In terms of Steven Adams and Zion. But I'm not sure how much it's going to matter. Like Zion gets to the rim. Like just whenever he wants to. And if someone gets in his way he draws a foul. So 
I'm not really sure that that matters so much. And the thing about Adams is when he's been in, I mean, you know, he's not a top-tier post player, but he certainly can be a mismatch for a lot of smaller guys, especially when teams are trying to play small ball. And I think, you know, there will be issues given, yes, spacing. If Adams in the game, he's not really a shooter. Zion's not really a shooter. But Zion can make shots. I mean, he showed a propensity to hit threes, to at least be a streaky shooter. Like a Jimmy Butler type guy where, you know, he'll have moments where he hits his shots. So I don't think that it's really impossible for it to work. And, you know, just quite honestly, I mean, Steven Adams, I mean, he's not Hakeem Olajuwon, but he's got some nice quick moves that, especially if they stagger them, he's going to be able to do some really nice damage against, you know, bench units. So I don't really hate that that much. And I actually think that that pairing is going to be, you know, a little better than people thought. But the defense, you know, I mean, that that's going to be the problem. I mean, the Heat took a huge lead. The Pelicans came back. But you watch the game and you see, like, Miami is shooting open threes. Like, sometimes they're shooting practice shots out there. And for how good their shooting is, and, you know, how consistent it's been. I mean, you, you you can't do that. And, you know, for what Jay Crowder brings, you know, Andre Iguodala is going to bring a lot of that on defense. And Avery Bradley may be a lot of it on offense. And it's, you know, you just, you mix it up. And Iguodala looked much more spry, looked like kind of more ready after all that time off. So I do feel, you know, that could be, effective for them um it's just going to be interesting to see i mean the pelicans ingram and zion you know were the offense i said one thing about twitter and this is another interesting question i have brandon ingram zion williamson these are the batman and robin for the pelicans there's no question well who's batman and who's robin and I know that on the face, it seems obvious. I was hard on Brandon Ingram forever. Like, I really was. Like, I, for like the first two years of his career, I was like, this dude's not a star. And I was just completely wrong. This dude's cooking chicken and shrimp all game. He's beating double teams. He's getting to the rack with authority. He's scoring at all three levels in all sorts of ways. Brandon Ingram is a superstar. No question. Zero question. I was... So wrong about everything I ever said about him. It took him a minute to develop. But once he figured out how to just take over the game and score at any level, or once you figure out how to take to score at any level, you can take over the game. But put it whatever way you want it. This man's a superstar. And I honestly don't know which one of them is going to be more valuable because as good as Zion is getting to the rack, we all know how important shooting is in this league. And Brandon Ingram can fucking shoot. Ingram can fucking shoot. And this is a good problem for the Pelicans to have, by the way. But it's also why I sort of predicted them to maybe not have quite the super fantastic season that everyone thought. Because there is going to be some figuring this all out. Now, they're both going to be there. They're both locked in. So this is not a question of... 
you know, him or me or anything like that. It's just they need to learn to coexist and win games. Lucky for them, Stan Van Gundy's a great coach. And they will figure it out. And in this game, I mean, they were truly torched from deep. I mean, Miami was just hitting so many shots. It's really hard to... You know, sometimes the other team just shoots so well. It just is what it is. And this felt like one of those games. So I think the Pelicans are, are going to be all right. I do think it's going to be a little bit of a struggle for them defensively. They're going to score a lot, but they're going to give up a lot of points. Bledsoe is going to be important to countering that. Josh Hart had a nice game, especially really nice second half. It's going to be interesting to see if J.J. Redick or Josh Hart are a more important part of the Pelicans this season. And I'm not trying to disrespect J.J. Redick, but Josh Hart looked pretty effective today. He looked very... He just looked good. And I think that he could be majorly effective in this system. And with J.J. Redick getting a little older, it'll just be interesting to see. Eric Bledsoe also, by the way, I think, you know, he's never going to be all of what Drew Holiday was. But if you had to, like, if you have to downgrade Drew Holiday, Eric Bledsoe is an effective downgrade. He's a guy who can do maybe 75% of what Drew Holiday can do. And at least in the regular season. Maybe a little more in the regular season. In the playoffs, eh. maybe he can do 80% of what Drew Holiday can do in the regular season and 70% of what Drew Holiday can do in the playoffs. If you have to downgrade, plus pick up like you know what amounts to five first-round picks or you know three picks and two swaps, whatever the hell it was, that's probably a valuable move. But a good game for Miami. Oh, the Warriors. What is there really to say? Like, honestly, truthfully, what is there to say? Like, I really don't have much of anything left for the Warriors anymore. Like, just honestly, like, I really don't have a lot left for them because there's a certain point where you are just done. And unless they make the trade for James Harden, the Warriors are just done. And I don't mean to be harsh or rude or a hater, but this team simply can't cut it. Andrew Wiggins is terrible. I was like one of the biggest Wiggins defenders. I was one of the longest, long-term Wiggins apologists. I stood by him longer than anybody. I defended Andrew Wiggins. He is terrible. Kelly Oubre has been terrible. And I know it's just a couple of games, and I know that there's possibilities, but there's also a certain point when you realize the Warriors had three all-pro players in their prime, and then four all-pro players, there's a tongue twister, in their prime, and they had a quality bench of experienced NBA veterans. The Warriors had Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Andre Iguodala, Draymond Green, Andrew Bogut, Sean Livingston, 
And, you know, they had different versions of the teams with other benches. Kevin Durant obviously then comes to the team. Harrison Barnes is in the previous version. He leaves. But you just have, you know, many different versions of the Warriors, obviously, even before the KD years. Then you have the KD years where there's less of a bench, but still, you know, so a, a phenomenal lineup and still a very good bench. And then now you don't even have that good of a starting lineup and you don't have much of a bench at all. And people forget that when Steph Curry went out, Sean Livingston would come in and just eat. He would just eat the opposing point guard's lunch because he was 6'8", and he would come in and back dudes down to the elbow and just get buckets. Livingston was awesome. And he was a huge key to what they did because their offense didn't crater when, you know, Steph and Clay or just Steph would sit. They still had everything going. And they have none of that now. And so, the Harden thing, while it may seem desperate, you're putting two all-pro offensive players together, and Draymond Green will have renewed energy to play defense, and then next year you have three all-pro offensive players and Draymond Green. It's for this year and next year. And Wiseman looks awesome. He's going to be a nice pick-and-roll big. He's throwing down dunks. He's got touch. But, man, it's just there's no point. The idea is that Wiseman would be a bridge star to the next Warriors team, sort of like the Spurs had planned with Kawhi Leonard. It didn't work out. But how is that going to happen? Like, he can't affect anything right now. Like, Wiseman has a nice future. You can see it. But he's not going to be affecting winning for like two to three years. Maybe next year, in a super effective timeline, he might be an effective player. But he is not a championship player for years. And the Warriors don't have gears with this core. If you bring in James Harden, you have two legitimate chances. Even now, Steph Curry and James Harden are literally impossible to stop. And if you stagger them, it's game-changing. Will it be difficult? Yes. But next year? New world. And I know that it's tough to mortgage the supposed future. But here's the thing. If you can give up Wiseman, get James Harden, and also get off the Wiggins contract, those are so many wins. They need to do it. And I don't mean to keep talking about this on this podcast, but everything that has happened has fed into the fact that this needs to happen. The Warriors are garbage. James Harden would completely change that. And James Wiseman cannot change that in time for their championship window. I want to, when discussing the Bucks, say that I see something. Their first game was a loss, but it was a high-scoring loss. Giannis played well. Middleton played well. DiVincenzo is balling. Drew Holiday looks like a perfect fit. They won this game by like 40. So I want to sit here and say the Bucks are there. They're at the next level. They're going to get the... But I've been saying that. And I'm sick of getting burned by them. And I really just think... 
I really just feel like there's nothing to talk about with the Bucks until we reach the playoffs. What's the point? Like, truly, what is the reason to talk about the Bucks before the playoffs? Why? What do they do? What are they, who cares what they do in the regular season? Like, we're upset about the Bogdanovich thing, right? It didn't work out. But we see right here that DiVincenzo can replace most of what he does, and maybe he can be that player. Now, the whole Bogdan hit huge shots in EuroLeague, he hasn't done it in the NBA playoffs. So until he does that, I'm not worried about it. If DiVincenzo does it, then it's fine. So that really can be wiped away. They've got Drew Holiday. It's a nice fit. It's working. But until we reach the playoffs, until we see the Bucks do something they haven't done, like reach the NBA Finals. Obviously, the franchise has done it, but this version of the Bucks hasn't. Giannis hasn't done it. And until we see them do it, there's really nothing left to talk about. Giannis is not going to win the MVP this year. He's probably not going to win Defensive Player of the Year again. I've said I think it's going to go back to Rudy. I know that it's weird to... Well, Rudy's going to win it again. You know, I thought in a contract year it would go back to Rudy. But who knows what will happen. But I think Giannis is... I don't think anyone's going to give Giannis awards anymore. At least none of the... You know, unless he just does incredibly phenomenal things. No one's giving you awards for being great anymore. It's the LeBron thing. Like, we know how great you are. Now you have to be phenomenal. And, you know, that frustrates LeBron. But it is what it is. And I think Giannis has reached that point where no one's giving him an award for just being Giannis and being great. And it's going to be interesting to see how that goes. This year was really set up for Luka. And, boy, we'll talk about that in a bit. The Nets in Boston... The Nets are good, man. The Nets are good. I I mean, I, along with everyone else, really thought, well, there's going to be defensive concerns. Kyrie isn't much of a defender. KD is coming off the Achilles, and, you know, we don't know about this and that and the other. And, boy, you know, sometimes you just you think too hard. And this is a think-too-hard situation. The Nets are so good. They have so much talent. And while I still feel good about picking Miami to make the conference finals because of how cohesive they are and how good their chemistry is and how well they play as a unit, it is really hard to pick against the Nets. Like right now, looking at the way Kevin Durant is playing, MVP level, and by the way, start that discussion. The Kevin Durant MVP stuff, that's going to come up. I mean, maybe he won't play enough because they're going to blow out so many teams that he exits game early. games early. That didn't hurt Giannis, though. But start the KD chatter because he looks fantastic. And, you know, the Nets had a lot of these same people last year with Kyrie, and they were okay. But with KD, they look just, you know, Kyrie didn't play the whole season, but he played part of the season. And just with KD, it just, it's a whole other thing. And it is frightening to think how good they can be 
if Karis LeVert continues to play this well and Joe Harris continues to play as well, it's just the Nets are going to be really good. And I think the majority of the concerns I had with them were overblown. Boston, I was a little eh on. Zach Lowe actually did a podcast, and he said he was a little worried about Boston. And then he said, I don't know why their top four are still there, and these are the guys who primarily drove them. Gordon Hayward was hurt, things like that. And those things make sense, but I think Boston's depth is a problem. You know, Tristan Thompson has looked like a decent fit. And I think that Jeff Teague has looked like a decent fit. But I don't know, you know, they need decent fit, decent fit. This They just need Tatum and Brown to be great and Kemba to be great. But Kemba's hurt. And Tatum and Brown have been great. And it hasn't, it helped them get the win over the Bucks in the first game. But I mean, the Nets blew them out. And Tatum wasn't necessarily great. I mean, it's, there are things you can pick apart, but for a lot of this game, they weren't even really in it. And, you know, there's a certain point where, like, Brad Stevens gets literally no criticism from anyone. You know, Bill Simmons loves him so much, and the Boston media loves him so much, and he gets no criticism. And there's a certain point where you got to wonder about this stuff. You know, you have to look at that and kind of like think to yourself, like, what's up here? You know? It just gets no criticism ever. Like, is Brad Stevens really that perfect? Like, he's been outcoached by Nick Nurse. He's been outcoached by Budenholzer. Is he really that good? I mean, we look at the, you know, the Eastern Conference Finals runs when LeBron was dominating the Eastern Conference. But the Eastern Conference was also terrible in those years, and LeBron absolutely wrecked them. I'm not saying Brad Stevens is a bad coach, but I think that Eric Spolstra and Nick Nurse are both much better and don't get the credit. We'll see. Lakers have good shooting. And, uh, I mean, I picked them to cover the spread, minus six and a half, and, and this game to go over. I hit those two in a parlay. And I'm... You know, I, I feel good about the Lakers in the same way that everyone else does. I, You know, again, I've never, you know, I've said that I don't like the free agency moves they made as much as everyone else, but I still think they're the favorites, and that's how I feel. In a game like this, you know, when it all clicks, they're great. This is kind of what I feel like it's going to be with the Lakers all season, is you're going to have some games like the Clippers game where it doesn't click, and they look good but not great, and games like tonight where everything falls and they look fantastic and as they get better and care more they'll win more games but you know again we're not going to know about this Lakers team until the playoffs and they're going to be fantastic and they're probably going to make the finals but I'm just again I'm 
I'm interested in the fit come playoff time for all these guys. But as of right now, in terms of the regular season, they've got so much shooting that, you know, it's really hard to see, you know, them stumbling too much, uh, you know, even if they load manage or whatever, or, you know, LeBron takes games off or just doesn't play much defense or whatever. It's hard to see them struggling too much. Um, again, I, my biggest thing with the Lakers is I don't know what the on-court fit of some of these guys is in the playoffs. And with Gasol, you know, we'll see. Um, it, the way that LeBron and AD are shooting, though, truthfully, the one the one counter-argument to the thing – the things that I've been saying about the Lakers and the on-court fit, if LeBron and AD are shooting incredibly well, and then Harrell is playing center with Gasol playing center, and they're just sort of mixing it up based on who's the opponent, you know, against small ball centers, you play Harrell. Against bigger guys, you play Gasol. Um, if LeBron and AD are going to shoot this well from deep, then I think it works. But I also think, you I mean, you really wanted to take LeBron and turn him into a shooter. I mean, it's there are ups and downs to it, and you know, again, ultimately, it's LeBron and AD, which is the best combo in the NBA right now, and that's a great problem to have, and they're most likely to win the title. But I'm just saying, I'm just of the opinion that last year's team was better than this year's team because I liked the composition of the team better, and I didn't necessarily feel that way going into the season. But I just, I just. If I was the Lakers, I would have killed to have gotten Ibaka. That's really the one for me. And that's the player who I really love um, for them that I also love for the Clippers. And that's where he's at. Luka Doncic. um, The Lakers whooped the Mavericks ass pretty hard tonight. Luka and the Mavs are 0-2. I said Luka was going to win MVP. A lot of cold water has been poured on that. Not just by me, but by... Literally everyone around the league. Some people are saying he's out of shape. Um, Okay, a lot of people are saying he's out of shape. Um, He looks a little rusty. He's not shooting well. Um, You know, Luca has never really shot that well from deep. And I wonder if there's a little bit of... The book is out on him. And... You know, he didn't really go through a sophomore slump, so maybe he's going through like a third year slump. I know it's, again, just the start of the season, conditioning, blah, blah, etc. But he's in the mid-range a lot. He's... It's... I don't know. It's hard for me to tell. I've watched both of the first two games. It's hard for me to really tell. You'd have to really dig in and see what percentage he's shooting. Um of, you know, from different ranges, but he's just not playing well. And he's still throwing nice passes. He's still getting to the rim. He's still shooting his free throws well, but he's just not shooting well. And you get the feeling a little bit that maybe he has the kind of shack attitude of like, I'm going to play my way into shape. You know, um, I don't really think you can do that in this Western Conference. As it stands, they've already lost to the Suns and and Lakers, who are two teams that are going to be prime, you know, playoff opponents. In the case of the Suns, someone that they'll definitely be jockeying for position with. And you have hurt yourself by, you know, not necessarily showing up well for those two games. And, you know, I'm 
someone who has been on the, you know, Luca's better than DeAndre and the Suns made a mistake and blah, blah, blah. And that's still all probably going to be true. But, you know, Luka Doncic hasn't become a James Harden style shooter. He's still so young. That time is still possible. But he's also so polished that there's some possibility that he has less growth room because he's already learned so much and so and and become so polished. Now again, maybe by age twenty eight, he's just so balling out of his mind that we forget all of these things. But at the very least, it does seem that Luca maybe needs to rethink the way he approaches the game in terms of work ethic or diet. You know, who knows? But you know. Cold water has been poured on the Mavs season and the Mavs hype and everyone was sort of, you know, dark horse title contender and, you know, Luca's at front of the line for MVP and Josh Richardson is uh, a perfect fit. And honestly, I think those things are true. You know, I think at their peak, I think all of those things are true, but they are not at their peak. And that's ultimately what it boils down to is we've seen the best of Luca for two years. We've seen the best of what the Mavs could be with him for two years. And now that things aren't going as well, they may struggle a little bit. Now, that's not, I'm not trying to say they're not going to make the playoffs. They're not going to be good. And I'm not going to say that Luca might not bounce back and win MVP. I'm not trying to walk away from that or anything. You know, I'm not trying to back off that prediction, any of those kind of things. It's not that at all. There is some definite, again, the the best way I can think to put it is that what we might have expected from a sophomore slump seems to maybe be on track for Luca in the third year. And maybe it'll get fixed quickly, but it's definitely going to be interesting to to see because a lot of people who have been very pro-Luka Doncic, who have been very on board him this season. Again, dumping cold water on that. So we'll see. Two guys competing for the MVP. I mentioned one of them, Kevin Durant. There's another one. Paul George. I was hard on him a couple of days ago. I said a few days ago that Devin Booker was going to be better for the next five years. I have ragged on Paul George relentlessly. We have all ragged on Paul George relentlessly. And that motherfucker has responded. I know it's two games. I know it's the first two games. But the man is cooking. He's cooking. He's cooking chicken. He's cooking shrimp. He's cooking chicken and shrimp. He's cooking chicken, shrimp, and filet mignon. Paul George is cooking. Okay? The man is balling. And the MVP discussion for Paul George is going to become very real very quickly. Him and Kevin Durant right now, through two games, those are your two. I know it's two games. I don't care. That's where we are right now. Through a couple of games for most of the teams, it just, those two are cooking. Kyrie's cooking too, by the way, for the Nets. They're balling. But Paul George is absolutely doing it. He's looked better than Kawhi the first couple games. Speaking of which, 
you know, Kawhi, get well, man. He got mashed in the face by Serge Ibaka tonight. Teammate, obvious accident, you know, nothing, no malice, obviously, you know, from his own, from a friend. It's just big accident, and hopefully Kawhi's okay. I haven't heard yet what's up, but, you know, hopefully he's okay because he got mashed in the face. That looked like it hurt. But Paul George is cooking, man. He is he is definitely going to be in the MVP discussion. And, you know, he said he was going to come out and have that kind of year. And credit to him, he's had it so far. It's, I know it's two games. But here's the thing about the MVP discussion. The first five games, names get thrown out. And then from those names, the narrative sort of begins. So if you cook for your first five games, people are going to notice that. We're all watching right now. You know, there have been tons of national exposure so far on all these games, so it's hard to ignore that stuff. And, you know, there's real truth to the fact that the MVP narratives start really soon, and Paul George wasn't obviously on anyone's radar in that world. But if he continues to 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 play like he's been... I mean, okay, speaking of, you know, we all made fun of the whole thing he said on all the smoke about the pick and rolls and Kevin O'Connor roasted him saying he ran more pick and roll than ever, blah, blah, blah. And he basically said Doc used him wrong. But here's one thing that's truly to his credit. Kawhi Leonard gets hurt with five minutes left in this game, right? And so it was obviously on Paul George to close this out. And the Clippers at one point had led by 24. And they let the Nuggets get all the way back to 11. And so we're all sitting here like, oh my God, here we go again. It's just like the bubble, right? They had the 3-1 lead. They're leading every game. They kept blowing it. And what the Clippers did when this was all happening is they went to a two-man game with Paul George and Serge Ibaka. And it just basically, I think three times in a row, actually, they ran a pick and roll with Serge Ibaka and Paul George on the left wing. Paul hit um, a triple. Or no, excuse me. Paul dribbled in, passed back to Ibaka for a triple on the first one. Then they ran it again. Ibaka pump faked and drove in and then hit Lou Williams in the opposite corner for the triple. So they ran two pick and rolls and hit two triples in a row. Then they ran it again and PG hit a mid-ranger. So like in the clutch, they just went to the PG Serge Ibaka pick and roll. And I've been so high on the Serge Ibaka thing and it re- he just fits perfectly. His ability to bother Anthony Davis is big. Even if you can't stop Anthony Davis, you just need to bother him. His ability to shoot well from deep is big. And his ability to go off the dribble, make nice... Serge Ibaka made multiple nice passes in this game. He went off the dribble and did some nice stuff too. He got to the rack. Serge is good. And I really love that signing for the Clippers. And it really looks like, you know, he and Kawhi Leonard have good chemistry Paul George and Serge Ibaka seem to be developing nice chemistry. Uh, even Pat Bev hit a big three in this game. It does seem like Montrez Harrell was... I mean, I'm not trying to put anything on him, but it just the personalities didn't click. Trez is really happy with the Lakers. Um, so it's just going to be interesting to see what's going to happen. But, man... Paul George is good in this game. And I do want to say another thing. You know, I see people talk about Ty Lue and, you know, say whatever. Ty Lue is rare. He's one of the few guys who can manage egos, which is a thing he learned from, you know, playing under um, uh, Phil Jackson. 
but he's also a good X's nose coach. You know, he's one of the few guys, you know, he's told LeBron to shut the fuck up in a huddle and LeBron listened to him. And, you know, he makes adjustments. He draws up good plays. He's got, like, he's got Doc Rivers ATOs and he's got Phil Jackson's ego management. And then he's got, like, you know, a Greg Popovich, Steven Silas, like Steven Silas's offense and Greg Popovich's defense. Ty Lue is a good coach, man. He can do it all. And I think this was a home run for the Clippers. And I do think everything that Doc had done and was doing had become stale there. And I think that this is a new Clippers team. And I, I think that this is an exciting time for Clippers fans. And to that note, I just want to go off. I'm going to go off on a little tangent real quick before I talk about the Nuggets. I was talking to my nephew about Phil Jackson, and he basically told me that he thought and had always believed that Phil Jackson was the inventor of the triangle, because there's all this discussion, especially in recent years with Phil Jackson, with the Knicks about the triangle and all these things, and he didn't even know who Tex Winter was. Tex Winter, not necessarily the inventor of the triangle, but really the person who perfected and modified it over so many years. Um, You know, again, Tex didn't really invent the triangle offense, but I still think of it as something that you know, he took to its absolute peak. Um, you know, Mike D'Antoni didn't invent the spread pick and roll, but, you know, his spread pick and roll offense is now the basis for the entire NBA, basically. So for as much as Mike D'Antoni didn't invent the pick and roll, you know, the spread pick and roll offense is truly, you know, an innovation from that national Amari Suns team. Well, Tex Winter, I believe, took the triangle uh, from a coach of his I'm, we'd have to look it up, but the point is that Tex Winter, for the longest time, really, you know, the triangle was his, it was, he was the mind behind the triangle because, you know, even he, the person he learned from, he was really the only true practitioner of it at that point. So, um, you know, for all the credit that Phil Jackson gets, he was not as much of an X's and O's guy. And this is not to say that Phil Jackson doesn't know basketball. Of course, Phil Jackson knows basketball. But his work was more about the theoretical, you know, let's be, you know, let's keep ourselves focused. Let's play this, you know, let's ice the pick and roll or blah, blah, blah. You know, whatever the, whatever the case may be. But where the whole philosophy of what the Bulls and Lakers did, where that all came from was really, in terms of the offense, was Tex Winter. Um, and so that's just someone that, you know, for people who don't know a ton about the history of the triangle offense, I would just encourage people to learn about Tex Winter. Rest in peace. But, as we close it down, as we wind down the show. The Nuggets. They nearly rallied back in this Clippers game. But at what point is like, well, our identity is that we come back. How about your identity is that you fall behind every game? That seems like a problem. Maybe that's not the identity that you want. And for as well as they played last year, for all the things that went right that way, they were due for some regression. And that's kind of what I thought was going to happen. And that's what appears to be happening here. And Murray, for, you know, all of the heroics in the bubble, you know, he's 
playing all right, he's playing all right. And then the fourth quarter, he's hitting shots. And it seems like his ability in the clutch was definitely not a fluke. But he's streaky. You know, he's going to have games where he's not scoring as much. But scoring as well as he can in the clutch where he can put up, you know, double-digit points in bunches in the fourth quarter, that's a huge skill. And down the stretch, Jokic... As much as we want Jokic to be aggressive and, you know, we all scream it, he defers to Murray in all of those scenarios. And Murray scores a lot. So it's not a horrible thing. But it's just interesting to watch. And I find it interesting that everyone's high on Utah. Everyone's high on the Nuggets. Everyone's high on this. And it's not that I don't like these teams, but I really think the Suns are going to surprise a lot of people. And it looks like the Mavs could be in trouble. Who knows? It's only the first few games, so it's hard to know exactly what's what in terms of, you know, are some of these real trends? Is it short in offseason? But some guys, the offseason wasn't short. Some teams are not relying on rookies. And also, you know, everyone basically went through the same thing. Sure, Miami and the Lakers played recently, but, you know, Miami was balling today. It didn't seem to bother them. You know, for all the whole short offseason stuff, there are plenty of years where guys, the offseason ends and then they go play national or international basketball or World Cup or Olympics or whatever. So, you know, all that stuff is kind of excuses. The season is what the season is. And so far, a couple of teams that a lot of people expected to be really good have shown that they're maybe not ready. And when it comes down to the playoff seeding, it's going to be interesting how this goes, and you're going to see maybe a couple of teams in the play-in that you didn't expect, or at least in the 7-8 seed having to compete for for those um, last spots. It's going to be interesting to see. And that's the Blunt Doctor Show. Christmas Day edition. Merry whatever you celebrate, happy whatever you celebrate. No judgment for me. Peace.